So over the announcements, just to remind everyone that we need to have your contact information in case we need to send out an emergency notification on the cancellation of class or something like that at the last minute. And so we have a sheet back in the ta a table in the, uh, in the fellowship hall that where you can sign up. Also, a week from this Saturday, is that right? No, two weeks from this Saturday, we have um, daylight savings time beginning. And so it will be important for you to remember to uh, set your... Uh, set your watches uh, back an hour. I always like to fall because we get an extra hour of sleep. So that's uh, daylight savings time. And then also we have the Christmas boxes for the uh, Samaritan's Purse ministry. And the deadline for that is November the 13th. And there's information in the fellowship hall about that. And then once again, just a reminder about the um, Grand Canyon trip. And you can uh, email in and find or call in and find out information about that trip. The dates are May 6th to 13th. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says we are to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But when we sin, we're walking according to the flesh. The only way to recover is to confess sin, and that means simply to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and instantly we are forgiven and then cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we had this time to come together this evening to be reminded of your grace, your goodness, to be reminded that you are in control of history and that, that you are the sovereign God of the universe who created the human race and that you created these divine institutions that are so critical for the uh, survival of the human race, for the preservation, the protection, the security of the human race. And Father, we pray that we might come to a greater understanding, especially tonight as we study in the framework of uh, government and the importance of nations and to provide security and safety for people. And Father, we live in a time when there are many who are in power who reject this whole idea of national borders and national entities and are moving more and more towards a one-world government. And we pray that we might have wisdom as believers uh, not to be sucked into this kind of false teaching and to recognize the uh, the leaders who wish to lead us in that direction and to do what we can to um, remove them from positions of power and influence. We pray that we can understand what we're studying tonight, that you will help us to uh, see these things and answer questions that we have, that we may have a, a great perspicacity as believers in the choices we make. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17. Tonight I want to take a little time and go back to part of the question that, that we've been talking about, which is submission to uh, a national entity, especially when that national entity might not be leading the way or in the direction that we think they ought to go. Uh, so I want to go back and look at something that didn't come up in the Q&A, 
which I would expect to have come up in the Q&A, and that's something called the Magdeburg uh, Confession. And I want to talk about that just a little bit, and then we will go forward in our passage understanding what it means to do the will of God and that we are to do good rather than to do evil. So what we have seen so far is that the believer has a responsibility towards the national government, the national entity. We are to submit ourselves to every ordinance uh, of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as as a supreme, and the verse goes on in the next verse to read, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And what we see in this section is this contrast back and forth between those who do good and those who uh, do uh, evil, the evildoers, the wrongdoers. And so we, it's a very important thing to understand, to understand the focus of the passage. So we are to submit ourselves. Clear word used several times in this passage related to submission of servants to masters or slaves to masters, uh, wives to hu- husbands, uh, children to parents. Uh, and in fact, it's used of the Lord Jesus Christ's submission uh, to the authority of God the Father. So we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. And unfortunately, that word every has been misunderstood. I've talked about this. I want to remind you a little bit about this tonight, that this does not mean that each and every uh, ordinance or law that is passed by a governing authority or mandated uh, through executive order or whatever should be obeyed. This is when I've read more and more in these areas over the last two or three weeks and historical documents. And the problem is there have been those Christians, and there are today, who say it doesn't matter what it is, you have to do everything the government says to do. You, you just take it. You just suck it up. You, you don't resist in any way. You don't try to resist legally. You don't try to uh, have the law change. You just, you just take it. You just, just passively um, t- take whatever comes. That is not what the Scripture says at all, and that's not what the Scripture gives as examples in time. There's the principle we studied again and again, that we are to obey God rather than man, but it's very specific to understand that. So every ordinance doesn't mean every ordinance. If we understand the context of Scripture, it's every ordinance that is uh, consistent uh, with the Word of God. And that word consistent doesn't mean it's perfect. There are many laws that we may think are unjust. That doesn't mean it's non-biblical. So we submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to his governors, his his representatives, the magistrates that serve at the will of the king or the government. And these ordinances are of human creation. That's why Peter uses the term katissis, meaning creation here, whereas in whereas Paul in Romans 13 uses the word for ordinances. And so we've seen this and walked through this, uh, that we are to uh, look at any of the magistrates as uh, the extension of the king. They're sent by him. That is the king, the ruler, okay? The king is, and that specifically indicates the individual. It's not just the office. And even as I've been studying, again and again, this mistake is made, and it continues to be made uh, today, especially by those who are on the, what I would call the extreme right wing of the uh, evangelical Christianity in this area. And I'm referring to those who are post-millennialists, because they think that we have to have a restoration of the law of God in every area of life, and that's called theonomy. Theonomy is the word theos for God plus namos for law, theonomy. And this view seeks to reinstate the uh, law of God as national law, that the law of Moses outside of the... They would not apply the... um, um, the religious law, the ceremonial law, they would not apply that. They would just apply the civic law uh, needs to be uh, specifically applied today, which is completely erroneous. As I was thinking about this today, I thought, you know, isn't it interesting? These are guys 
who usually they, they've written a lot about government. They have some some of their material is very very good and very very help, helpful. But you always have to recognize where they're coming from. They want to uh, reinstate uh, the Mosaic Law so that Jesus can come back post millennium. Only by a restitution of the God's law will we bring in the millennium, and only by bringing in the millennium can, will Jesus eventually come back. So that's their. Uh, that's their perspective, but they they want to. In usually, uh, many of their writings, they are strong literalist when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. They are strong strict constructionists. They want to interpret the Constitution in terms of original intent. My question is, why don't they interpret the Bible that way? Why is it when it comes to eschatology they want to go? Uh, into a non-literal interpretation, and you don't have a literal thousand years. The way they interpret Revelation 20, uh, you would think they were a postmodern freshman English teacher at the University of Texas. Uh, they're absolutely absurd in terms of how they want to interpret uh, Bi- the Bible uh, eschatologically. So uh, what we see here is that uh, in this passage, it's not talking about the office of the governor, are the king. It's talking about the person of the king. And I pointed this out in the last uh, three lessons, is that this was one of the fallacies that entered into the thinking of the church following the Reformation as they're seeking to develop a a biblical philosophy of government and and polity. They said that you you can respect the governor, respect the king, and not violate Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 by removing the person because you're not removing government per se. And the point is that's sloppy exegesis. It's talking about the person of the king who is represented by the government, not by the just the office. So we saw that these are the two extremes that often people enter into is, is this idea of either absolute total 100% submission to every uh, jot and tittle of law blindly without any uh, try to attempt to change things or they go to this other idea that you can remove the person without overturning the office. Now I want to remind you of this passage because it's germane to what we need to understand in this Magdeburg confession. When Peter and John are preaching in the temple area they are arrested by the Sanhedrin and they are taken and they are examined and as it were put on trial. And in Acts 4, Peter and John said, uh, after being told not to proclaim the gospel, they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, the Sanhedrin, more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. He states it more clearly in the fifth chapter. So what happens is, They go out, they preach again, they get arrested again, and that's described in Acts 5, 18 through 20. Uh, But an angel of the Lord comes, releases them from prison, and orders them to go stand in the temple and to speak to the people all the words of life. So they do that, they get arrested again, and they're brought back before the uh, Sanhedrin, and the high priest reminds them, well, we told you uh, strictly not to teach in this name. And you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than man. That's the biblical principle. When there is a contradiction between what God tells us to do and what um, some governing authority says to do, that's the only time we have a right to violate, to resist, to change uh, that law in, in an extreme sense. Now, if the government comes along and, and passes a law in our, especially in our country, then we are duty-bound if this is wrong, if this is a silly law, if it is a bad tax, if it has uh, horrible ramifications, then we are to start challenging it in the courts. There are ways to do that, and that there are many different... The, the scale of resistance is, is, is great. Uh, too many people, when they think of resistance, they immediately jump over uh, 20 miles of options and land on, let's go get our AR-15s and, and leave, the, leave the nation. And uh, sadly, there are a lot of people who think that because they're just angry and fed up over decades 
of the increase of federal government and um, the ignoring of the Constitution. So all of that is just kind of background and recognize that what happens when we stand for the truth, just like the apostles, they plotted to kill them, they beat them, but nevertheless they went out and they did not cease teaching and preaching uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Now, let me remind you of this. I meant to put this on a slide and didn't do it, so you just have to remember this. We have certain examples in the Scripture of biblical resistance to governing authorities, and these provide the paradigm for different kinds of situations. First of all, we have the decree of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 that the midwives are to uh, kill all of the male babies that are born. And the midwives resisted that. They just uh, said, oh, you know, we just didn't get there in time. They came up with a reason and a way to av- avoid having to do what Pharaoh said to do. That's in Exodus 1, 15 through 17. Then we have the example of Rahab. Rahab hides the two Jewish spies, the Israelite spies that came into Jer- uh, uh, Jericho, and she hid them. And then when... Um, Uh, the uh, ruler of of Jericho said, where are the spies? She said, I don't know. I think they left. They went out of town, and they went that way. And uh, uh, as a result of that, the spies were able to escape. Then we have another example, one I haven't mentioned before, and that's Esther. Esther is a very important example of resisting a king's ordinance because Ahasuerus had been duped by Haman, to pass this law that on such and such a date that the people could had open season against the uh, the Jews and they could kill them all. And then when he realized how he had been duped due to the way that Esther very wisely uh, went through a series of, of uh, luncheons where she had Haman and Ahasuerus uh, come in and she presented the case, she exposed Haman for what he was doing, That is a resistance to an unjust law. But she made the king understand what would happen, and the result was that Haman was executed, and the law was couldn't be changed, but it was added to that the Jews had the right to self-defense and to fight back, so that when um, when the day came, very few people tried to kill the Jews. And it changed change the nature of things, but it's a point of resisting. It's working within the system, using the laws the laws at hand. Uh, another uh, the that example, and the next three examples, all take place when the Jews are outside of the land, living under the authority of pagan governments. It's very important. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, the fourth example is Daniel. We've talked about this recently. Daniel cha- uh, challenged the diet they were going to be put under in Babylon. He uh, made a commitment that he was going to only eat kosher. So he goes to the chief of the eunuchs. He appeals to him. He presents a case. Uh, God blessed his presentation so that the uh, head of the um, of the eunuchs said, okay, we'll give it a try. We'll run a test case. And if at the end of the uh, test period... If the uh, Israelites are stronger than the than the others, then then we'll keep doing it, which is what happened. So down, that's a picture of how you can present a case to the to the to the uh, ruler to change the way the law is applied or to change the law, and the response is positive. The next example, which is the fifth example, is the three Hebrew men who are who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and they appeal to the king. The king says, I've already made the ruling that anybody who doesn't bow down, they're going to be uh, burned in the fiery furnace, and so they are going to reap the negative consequences. There's no response to their appeal, but God intervened and uh, saved them. Uh, Then you have the example of Daniel, same thing. Daniel refused to obey uh, the law that you couldn't pray or appeal to anyone other than uh, Darius, and he goes home and prays just like he did every day to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the result was he's thrown into the den of lions. He's willing to do the right thing, to obey God rather than man, and take what comes to him. You don't notice in Esther, 
in these three episodes in in um, in Daniel, you don't see a you know a conspiracy or a movement to try to unite against Nebuchadnezzar or Ahasuerus or Darius. It is I'm going to do what God says to do, and if you want to punish me for it, that's fine. If not, uh, then it's in God's hands. So those are those examples. Then we get to the New Testament. We have the example of Peter and John in Acts 4 and 5, which I read to you earlier. And then we have one other example in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have been witnessing in Philippi. They've cast the demon out of a fortune-telling girl, and the people who owned the girl, uh, the slave girl, uh, were going to lose their livelihood, lose their means of income. And so they went to the city leaders and had Paul and Silas arrested and put in jail. That night, an angel comes, releases them from their bonds. Uh, they don't leave the jail, though. They stayed there. And then the next morning, it was discovered that uh, that the bonds were gone. The, the Philippian jailer, you know, he was one of the smallest people in the Bible because he slept on his watch. So the Philippian jailer is scared to death, and he came to uh, Paul and Silas, and he said, he, he said, what can I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and you will be saved, you and your, your family. But they stayed there. And then when the Romans came in, I mean, the, the, the city leaders came in and discovered what had happened, um, they said, oh, you guys, you're free. Let's let bygones be bygones. You guys just leave town real quietly, and we won't, we won't say anything, and nothing will happen. But this is what Paul says in Acts 16.37. Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. That's a key thing. He's, by saying that, he's revealing to them that they have Roman citizenship, and it was illegal under Roman law to beat a Roman citizen. So he is saying, you know, your leaders arrested us and beat us. That was illegal. And so we're not just going to walk away. He says, now they want to put us away secretly. No, indeed. See, Paul is using the law against them. See, Christians do not have to be rollover pacifists. When somebody, the ruler does something wrong, then you, 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 you are wise and figure out how to use that against them. You don't just, just jump to superficial uh, decisions, but they, and this is what's happening in this country. You have a lot of organizations like the American uh, Family Association, like Liberty Council, and who knows how many others that are fighting for First Amendment rights day in and day out, and they're having huge success in the courts. And that's how you, you resist these unjust laws. Uh, by doing it within the legal structure that has been set up uh, set up in this country. So uh, what Paul said was, they want to put us away secretly? No, they didn't beat us and break the law in secret. Let them come, and, come themselves and let us out. And so the officers went back to the magistrates, and, <clears throat> and they were afraid when they found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came, they pleaded with them, and finally they brought them out and asked them to, to, uh, to leave the city. So there is a justification that takes place, and Paul is right in saying, no, you're going to do it the right way. You're not going to get away with this in secret. And so these are the examples. Now, each of those is different, and each of those sets up um, certain kinds of uh, standards and a framework for how to handle uh, situation when the person in authority is doing something that is uh, that's not right. It doesn't necessitate breaking the law in, in some cases in order to get that because two wrongs don't make a right. There's just too many people. So the government does something wrong or something happens and they go riot. That is wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. You stay in a position of obedience to to the law. So one example historically of this that has just become known in the last four years is uh, something that happened in Magdeburg, Germany in the late 1540s, approximately uh, 30 years after the Protestant Reformation began. 
It was the documents on this had been available for centuries in Latin, but they hadn't been translated into English, so they weren't known and they weren't accessible. And in, um, here's a copy of the book right here. And in uh, 2012, a Matthew Colvin translated it into English and they published it as a tool to letting Christians understand the biblical way to challenge the magistrate when the magistrate uh, institutes or initiates an unjust law. The trouble with this is that many people have distorted what is said in this uh, in this uh, confession and uh, misrepresented it. And I want to talk a little bit about that uh, now. So uh, initially... Um, I just want to give you some warnings that uh, as I read through this, because when I purchased my copy of the book, it came with a a um, three-page handout that was folded in there, and it starts off like this. It says, Scripture speaks to the qualifications of civic leaders. Okay? We've all heard this kind of thing before by many people. In fact, there is a a very well-known uh, uh, president of a Southern Baptist seminary who is very vocal in his opposition to uh, uh, Donald Trump and his candidacy because of his immorality, because of his treatment of women, a number of other factors. He's crude, he's rude, he's socially unacceptable many times, and we all know that. But, you know, my response to that is he's an unbeliever. You cannot... You cannot hold an unbeliever to the standards of uh, being a believer. You can't do it. It's wrong. It's self-righteous. It's arrogant. It's pharisaical. And you're dead wrong, period. You don't understand a thing about grace or the Bible, frankly. So they cite these passages like Exodus 18.21 when uh, Moses is picking out different uh, different men to, to rule over uh, he's going to delegate authority to these uh, uh, lower magistrates, as it were, among the tribes of Israel. It says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And Second um, Samuel 23.3, which is one of the last uh, statements that David makes, the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And so you have these quotes. Now, what's, what's, what's going on here? Well, we have to be very careful because when you see a number of Christian leaders today emphasize the need for these kinds of moral qualities among national leaders on, on, on a, the civic stage, they either cite passages like I just quoted from the, from the Old Testament or based on the Torah, or they quote from passages in the New Testament, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1. But these are passages that are talking in the Old Testament sense about leaders of God's theocratic kingdom. No other country was expected by God to have leaders like that. But Israel was a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be distinct from all other nations. And so they were to be, exemplify the highest standard possible for God's people under the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law was never applied to the Assyrians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Egyptians, to anybody else. So it's totally illegitimate to do that. It's a it's comparing apples to oranges. When you get in the New Testament and you have these moral qualifications for national leaders, I mean for leaders, they're leaders of the church. They're they're not for civic civic leaders. So we have to understand that there is a difference, and the difference is that we have to understand that the pattern for how the believer is to operate within a pagan national entity and to choose leaders, if they have that privilege, to choose leaders is not to be found in either the theocracy of the Old Testament or the ecclesiology of the New Testament. No, God does not expect that. You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, here's what we see in the Old Testament. This is in Jeremiah chapter 29, a crucial pattern. Now, what's going on in Jeremiah 29? 
Jeremiah 29, the Jews have been told by God that they are going to be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and that Nebuchadnezzar is going and that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them into captivity they are going to be taken from their homes and they're going to be taken as slaves back to uh back to Babylon and they're going to live in a pagan country and this is what he tells them he, thus says the lord of hosts the god of Israel to all who were carried away captive whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God takes responsibility. It's a fifth cycle of discipline. You're now going to be living in a pagan world. You're not living in the theocracy under the Torah anymore. You're living in a pagan world with a pagan king who has multiple wives, who is an idolater, who is immoral, who is egotistical, who is the opposite of everything that's listed for what your king should be when you're under theocracy. But now you're going to be living in this pagan environment. This is Daniel. This is Esther. So the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to overturn the government and install a spiritual king over the Babylonians. I want you to make sure that their king fits the standards of Deuteronomy and Exodus. Is that what he said? No, that would be totally absurd. What God says is, go live there, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons. Here we are, verse 6. Take wives, and be, uh, take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I'll visit you and perform my good word to you and cause you to return to this place. So there's a promise that there's an, there's an end of this. But in the meantime, you're going to be living in a pagan world with a pagan government, and you're to make the most of it. You are, in fact, to live your lives in such a way that it will bring blessing by association to the pagan government. You're not going to change the pagan government. You are going to uh, provide a blessing for that pagan government. And that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. At no point does God expect them to impose the Torah on the civic government of, of Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or anywhere else. Uh, Gentile leaders were never held to the standards of Torah anywhere in the scripture. You can go through all the major prophets, minor prophets, where there's a condemnation, a judgment announced on uh, on all the various pagan kingdoms, on Edom, on Philistia, on uh, Lebanon, on Assyria, on Babylon, all uh, Egypt, Greece, all of these ha- have their, their woes announced. But they're never condemned for, for violating Shabbat. Israel was condemned for violating Shabbat, this sabbatical year. They're never condemned for violating anything that is unique or distinctive to the Mosaic law. They are condemned for two things, how they treated the Jews and idolatry. And that goes back to the Noahic covenant, which is for all human beings. They are never condemned for anything that is distinctive or unique to the Mosaic law. And so what we see is that they are supposed to be submissive to the pagan kings who multiplied wives like crazy, people like Nebuchadnezzar and fools and autocrats like Belshazzar in Babylon, uh, Darius and Cyrus who also had many wives and were not uh, moral or ethical leaders like we would like, Ahasuerus who had his, wanted his wife uh, Vashti to come out and uh, in a very disrespectful way entertain all of his male guests at, at a big, uh, big banquet. These men are egotistical, they're vain, they're worshiping idols, they're immoral, they're spiritual failures, yet God 
put them in positions of authority and rulership. And see, that's important to understand because when you get into these discussions from a lot of these uh, over-idealistic Christians, uh, what they have said historically was that if the king did wrong, then he's no longer a just king and therefore he can't be God's ordained. That's how they reasoned. But that's not historically correct. That's not biblically correct. And so when you follow that line of reasoning, you're going to get into uh, a tremendous amount of trouble. The New Testament says something very similar. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Now, this is a, this is a criterion for who you're going to vote for. You're going to look at two candidates. Forget the other two. It's going to be one or the other. It's going to be a Democrat or it's going to be a Republican. It's going to be Hillary Clinton or it's going to be Donald Trump. There's not going to be any other option. Now, it's real easy to come to the decision which one is going to be more sympathetic to First Amendment rights of churches and Christians than the other one. Which one is going to be more supportive of forcing Christians to perform uh, homosexual marriages? One is and one isn't. Uh, there are many other things that we can we can look at, but one is going to decimate the First Amendment every chance she gets, and the other one won't. It, the discussion ought to end there, but we can go to the Second Amendment and the Fifth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment and how uh, one candidate will decimate uh, the Bill of Rights as much as she can and the, the other one won't. But our criteria is, from this verse, under whose administration is Christianity going to fare better and have more peace and less to be concerned about than, than the other one? That's, that's the bottom line. So we look at these and uh, recognize that expecting any political leader to follow a biblical pattern of morality or spirituality may be a nice and wonderful thing if we can get it. But that's not the option that we have today. We have the option of, as one person put it, selecting the taller of two midgets. Okay? But one midget is going to be much more evil than the other. So expecting secular leaders to follow a biblical, a theocratic, or ecclesiastical model is just plain self-righteous biblical ignorance. So we also have to recognize that, that there is a biblical pattern, and for the most part, this is something that was set forth in the Magdeburg Confession, otherwise known as the um, um, doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So now we're going to get a good history lesson. So we, to understand the significance of this, we have to understand the historical context. So first of all, October 31st, we're going to celebrate uh, October 31st in about uh, 10 or 11 days, and that is Reformation Day. It's called Halloween because it was uh, the next day, November 1st, in the, in the Roman Catholic calendar was All Saints Day. Saints were called hallowed people. That was another English word. So the evening, just like the night before Christmas is Christmas Eve, the night before All Hallows Day is Hallow Evening, Hallow Eve, or Halloween. That's where Halloween came from. And so since that day's a day to celebrate the saints, we're going to give the devil his opportunity and do something devilish on the night before. So this is where Halloween came from. But it was on that day, October 31st, 1517, that a, an Augustinian monk, Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, who was a real bull in a china closet. And every now and then, leaders need to be bulls in china closets to shake things up because everybody gets so so passive in their routine or settled in their power base. So Luther nailed these 95 theses or argument or debate points to the church door in Wittenberg Church uh, in Germany. It was All Saints Church, also called the Castle Church. And so this sparks 
he, he struck a match that lit a fire that ran through all of Europe. This is on October 31st, 1517. Then four years later, there's going to be blowback from the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. And he convened a, a meeting called the Diet of Worms. That is not a way to lose weight. Okay, a, a diet is a term for a convocation or assembly of magistrates in order to adjudicate something. So, and it's not worms, it's verms. It is a German word. It's not talking about little crawly worms that you use for bait, okay? So this is the diet of verms. And they were going to try Luther on charges of heresy. And so they heard all this testimony from the end of January, from 28 January until about the middle of April. Luther was brought in uh, during the middle of April in order to give his testimony. And afterwards, he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he knew that he would be arrested and executed. So he managed to escape from the castle at Verms, and he fled back to Wittenberg. But on his way, Prince Frederick the Wise, who was sympathetic to him and is the uh, ruler of Saxony, he's known as Frederick III, the Elector of Saxony, and he is showing what a lesser magistrate would do. He has um, Luther grabbed or kidnapped on his way home, and he takes him to Vardberg Castle. Nobody knows where Luther is, and he hides him and protects him so that Charles V can't do him any harm. By the end of this period, um, they uh, come to a conclusion and at the Edict of Worms and declared Martin Luther to be a heretic, that he taught both old and condemned heresies as well as being the inventor of new ones. He was to be arrested and delivered to Charles V, first, Charles V where he would be executed. But at this particular time in history, God raised up some other problems in the empire, so Charles had to go elsewhere, and he turned his gaze away from Luther uh, for many years, and by the time he was ready to do something about Luther, Luther was too popular, the movement was too big, and so he just had to let it, let it go. So God protected, uh, protected Luther. The next thing that happens in terms of our study is that 10 years later, there is a, there's a group of German uh, princes who join together their cities, their duchies, whatever, into what is known what was known as the Schmalkaldic League. Say that five or six times real fast. The Schmalkaldic League, uh, formed by Prince Philip of Hesse and Prince John Frederick I of Saxony. These were two of the most powerful Protestant leaders, and for 15 years they were see they're opposing the emperor because they're allowing Protestantism to flourish. So it's all about religion. And uh, this went on for about 15 years. And then in 1546, Luther died. Once Luther was dead, Charles V thought, aha, I've got an opportunity now, and so we're going to end this particular problem. So four months after Luther died, Charles V entered into a treaty with Pope Paul III to end the spread of the Reformation. So this, all of this is about religious freedom and religious belief. In his mandate from Paul III, Pope Paul III, uh, he was told his imperial majesty, that's Charles V, should prepare himself for war against those who objected to the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic theological response to the Reformation. It, it, uh, uh, it vindicated all Roman Catholic theology. So he said, this is against those who objected to the Council of Trent, that's the Protestants, against the Schmalkaldic League, and against all who were addicted to the false belief and error in, in, um, in Germany. And that he do so with all his power and might in order to bring them back to the old faith and to the obedience of the Holy See. So the issue is we're going to commission Charles V to send his military into the Schmalkaldic League and to force them by, by arms to submit and to change their theology and to come back uh, under the authority 
of the uh, Roman Catholic Pope. <coughs> this resulted in a war called the Schmalkaldic League War, which lasted from July 4, 1546, till April 24, 1547. Charles V defeated them. He imprisoned Philip of Hesse and John Frederick of Saxony, and everything looked like it was over with. All the many different cities and villages submitted to the authority of Charles V and were converting back to Roman Catholicism except one town, and that was Magdeburg. The pastors in the town uh, influenced the city council called the Senate, and they refused to submit because they had a freedom to believe what they believed was the truth about God's word. So on May 15th, 1548, Charles V uh, issued the Augsburg Interim. He called another diet. That's not Nutrisystem. Okay, he calls another convocation. And they issue a decree called the Augsburg Interim, um, and this is supposed to end the Protestant Reformation. That's their goal. Everybody has to convert uh, to Roman Catholicism, and Magdeburg's the only city that stood against them. There were nine pastors who were significant in enabling the people to take their, their stand and giving their, their, their strength. There were about, uh, at the end, there's a siege for about a year and a half, and close to uh, 4,000 of, of Charles V's troops are killed, and only about a tenth of that, about 450 or so, of the uh, those in Magdeburg were killed during this year-and-a-half-long siege. Now, here are some statements uh, from this. I think it's um, important to understand their basic principle. And this is their basic principle. Now, remember, there are people who are taking this completely out of context and using it today to justify some sort of dis civil disobedience against everything from taxation to whatever, not directly related to biblical mandates. This is what they say. When a higher or superior authority makes an unjust or immoral law or decrees, the lower authority in government has the right, even the duty in the sight of God, to interpose against that immoral law or decree, to refuse obedience to the immoral law or decree, and if need be, to openly resist the unjust or immoral law or decree made by the, by the higher authority. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Can anybody tell me what's wrong with that statement? It's ambiguous language. You can take that out of context and you can come up with anything that you think is an immoral law or decree or an unjust law. That's not specific language. But you have to look at other things that are said. For example, they say the idea of unlimited obedience to the state is an invention of the devil. That's the idea of the divine right of monarchy, anything and everything they say we just blindly obey. And then they say, when the state makes laws commanding us to do that which God forbids or makes law forbidding us to do that which God commands, we obey God rather than man. Have you heard that someplace recently? That's what they mean in context when they talk about a law that is unjust or immoral. It's a law is unjust or immoral because it directly contradicts the word of God. See, we have to read things contextually. Now, they're not fighting the same kind of battles we're fighting with, with certain Christians, but, but Christians will go back and they will quote this as if it has no relationship at all in the document with this statement. This statement defines what they mean by an unjust law. It's a law that specifically contradicts what God says to do or what God prohibits from doing. A couple of things we need to note before we you, you read or go into this. First of all, just as there's a failure to define the term unjust law and immoral law, there's also a failure to define the word tyranny. They talk consistently about the fact that Christians have the right to resist tyranny. But tyranny doesn't mean just anything you think is uh, tyrannical. 
tyranny in context is the Holy Roman Empire coming in and say, you have to return to Catholicism. And using force to do it. Here's a statement. Whether a Christian magistrate can or ought to preserve his state and the Christian teachers and hearers in it against his own superior magistrate and drive off by force one who is using force to compel people to reject the true doctrine and true worship of God and accept idolatry. That's what tyranny was. Tyranny wasn't the fact that the, they, they wanted to have a graduated income tax. Tyranny wasn't the fact that they wanted the the the, the, the top 1% of the country, the richest people in the country to carry 80% of the financial burden. That may all be unjust and unrighteous, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about contradicting the word of God. And and here they're making it even more clear that this involves the, 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 the higher magistrate, the king, using force to compel people to reject the true doctrine and true worship of God and to accept idolatry. Totally different scenario. This is an Acts 4 and 5 scenario. It's not the kind of thing we're running into yet in the United States. But they recognize that the, these pastors who wrote this recognize that this could be easily abused by even good people. That's what we're seeing today. This kind of reasoning is being taken out of context. They wrote, even good men are sometimes carnally impatient of injuries and can badly abuse opinions that have been rightly handed down to them by employing them at the wrong time or place. And I've heard too many libertarians and too many conservatives want to just jump over 20 miles of options to, you know, throw sand in the gears of the progressives and to cause and to use legal options to try to challenge things. And they just want to jump to some sort of a hostile, hostile reaction. In terms of their oath loyalty to Charles V. This is what they said. This is what they wrote in one section of it directly to Charles V. Said, we will gladly render obedience as much as we are able and we owe you that except for the preservation of our religion, nothing else is sought. See, that was the only issue. There might have been many things the emperor was doing, but they weren't contradicting scripture. And they're saying the only thing that we have an issue with is you want to force us to change our religious beliefs. So except for the preservation of our religion, nothing else is sought that when this is gained, our Senate and citizens will be most obedient in all their proper duties according to your majesty's law. And then they write, we again affirm from the sure word of God that when superior magistrates attempt to force papistical idolatry upon their citizens to overwhelm the true worship of God and his true worshipers, just as they have now begun to do by unjust maneuvers with their laws, even if they pretend otherwise, then pious magistrates are not only able, but even have an obligation to resist them as far as they are able to defend the true doctrine, worship of God, life, modesty, and the property of the subjects and preserve them against such tyranny." Tyranny, see, there's the use of that word, and how is it used in context? It's dealing with forcing the subjects to worship uh, the, the Roman Catholic doctrines. So a point that I'm making here is that this document is often being used today to try to justify a lot of different um, interventions against federal policies or federal government where they really haven't exegeted it correctly. They have abused it. And this is, in fact, the edition that I have has a forward by George Grant, who's a, who is a major voice in the post-millennial theonomic worldview. They don't know how to exegete literal interpretation or original intent, as I stated already. So as you look at this, um, we have to recognize that that what they were saying was the same thing that I've been saying for the last uh, last three weeks, and uh, it's it's important that we understand this. First of all, depending on the legal system, every effort should be made to peaceably reverse a law. We have to work smarter, not not get into a headbutting contest, but we have to apply biblical wisdom. But you know what? When you've got a spiritually ignorant 
uh, evangelical population like we have today, they can't think wisely because there's no doctrine in their souls. And that's really important. You have people who just can't think biblically anymore because they don't spend time in the Word. But we have to be Daniels. We have to be wise. We're not trying to overturn the pagan system. We're trying to preserve freedom. Second, each individual must obey God, first of all, in direct commands rather than government where there is a conflict. But in other areas, then you are to be obedient. If the human government then replies with force, as it did at Magdeburg and as it did at Lexington, then the lesser magistrates have a right of self-defense. But force in response must be used sparingly. So we've understood all of that. Now, last time I talked about the fact that we have nationalism. The nation is established by God. Boundaries are set by God. And just last night, if you uh, could stomach the debate, I could not. Um, I'm seeing a lot of heads in agreement. I'm just tired of it. But we once again heard uh, one one candidate, heard uh, Mrs. Clinton talk about how she really didn't mean what she said, which is open borders. And she tried to prevaricate and lie and say, oh, she was just talking about the free flow of petroleum or goods like that. And that's just garbage. She wouldn't know the truth if it slapped her in the face. So um, we have to recognize that um, that we have to have closed borders. If you left your house unlocked with the doors open all the time, you would quickly lose everything you had and you would be destroyed. And that's the issue in borders. It is the point of security, and that's what Mr. Trump recognizes. Whatever else his flaws and failures may be, he does understand what the basis of national security is, and it starts with, it starts with, with borders. Now, As we look at our passage, as we look at these four verses that are brought together here, the command is to submit to every ordinance, every creation law, uh, created law by man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or his governors, his representatives, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Notice the contrast here. the governors, the, the, the standard for the government is that they are to punish evildoers and they are to praise those who do good. Now, we're going to see this contrast between evildoers and uh, those who do good through the rest of First Peter. The word translated evildoers, which was uh, made uh, well, which was a term that was used many times by President George W. Bush in referring to the uh, Muslims. He just didn't carry it far enough. Uh, is kaka poyas. Poyas is from the verb meaning to do. A uh, kakas is the word for evil or wrongdoing. So these are wrongdoers or evildoers. They are those who are causing trouble. In contrast to those who do good, it's poyas again, the verb to do, with uh, the other word for good, the adjective agathos, applied to it, meaning to do well. And so there's a contrast. Believers are to be those who do well. But look at how how this is used. We've looked at verse, uh, verse 14 here, but it goes back to verse 12. Verse 12, we're to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers... So this is what's going to happen in a Gentile uh, government. There are going to be those who oppose Christians and accuse them of things that are that they're doing that are wrong. They are biased. They're prejudiced. They are um, they're racist. Uh, they uh, demean women because they think women wives should submit to their husbands. They'll make all these kinds of uh, false claims in order to run down Christians. They will charge us with being evildoers and the source of problems in the country. If we just got rid of all the Christians, then everybody could be as sexually licentious as they want, and we would all be happy. That's their basic rationale. So it's all our fault because we're trying to hold the nation to a standard. So we will be accused of being evildoers. But, and then First Peter 2.14, um, the governor is supposed to punish evildoers. 
1 Peter 4.15, Peter says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. An evildoer is someone who is a criminal, someone who is doing things that uh, are destructive uh, to the culture, to the society, and to the government. Or as a busybody, uh, that's a gossip or a slanderer, somebody who's a busybody in other people's manner. Now, the word for doing good, or it broken down into two words or one word, is found many times as well. In 1 Peter 2.20, we read uh, Peter saying, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, he's talking to the slaves, what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults? If you've done wrong and your master beats you, well, that's probably what you deserve. Uh, If you take it patiently, what credit is it? Because you know you deserve the beating. But when you do good, you do the right thing, you do it well, and you're beaten for it, If you take it patiently, that's commendable before God. In other words, if you're not saying, I have my rights. When I was first out of college, I had the learning experience of two years of running a junior and senior high uh, in-school suspension class. Most of my darling little students were junior high kids. There's nothing nastier in the world than a juvenile delinquent. And anything that would happen, and I would say something, they'd say, when I have my rights, and I would say, your rights, the Constitution ended at my door, you have no rights. I am the boss. I determine your happiness and your health, and if you smart mouth me, you get 10 more days in here. So, And it would take some of those kids a long time to learn that hell was a nasty place to be. When you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. You don't say, well, that's in my rights. You can't do that to me. Well, you have to have humility and grace orientation. That's commendable before God. We see it again in terms of wives to husbands. First Peter 3, 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, you're doing well, and are not afraid with any terror. 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11, quoting from the Old Testament. He would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, that is being an evildoer, and do good. That is what the believer is supposed to do. He is supposed to, he's not a do-gooder in the, in the sense of the uh, self-righteous, but he is someone who obeys Scripture and does what Scripture says to do. 1 Peter 3.16, we're to have a good conscience, um, going back to saying again, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. See, when we look at 1 Peter 2.13.14.15, we realize that we're going to be accused of being evildoers. And 1 Peter 3.16 expands on that and says when they defame you as evildoers, when they bring up this false charge, um, then those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed if you are living well, doing good. And then Peter says in another way than he did earlier, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing it the right way than for doing evil. In 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. That's what we're supposed to do. 1 Peter 2.15 says then, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So a lot of times people say, well, why do I need, I need to know the will of God. Well, this is a clear statement of the will of God. Do the right thing. Live your life with spiritual virtue and honor Take your biblical priorities of studying the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, applying the Word of God, and do that. That's what you know to be true. If you're doing that, God will guide and direct your life. This is in contrast to the fact that that, um, uh, Christians were going to be charged as evildoers in 1 Peter 2.12. They were going to be punished as evildoers in 1 Peter 2.14, even though they weren't and that they are to do good now in 1 Peter 2.15, even though they're being abused and charged as evildoers. We see this continue in 1 Peter 2.20, this whole idea of doing right 
and being punished for it is a major theme in First Peter. Um, what credit is when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently when you do good and suffer. Uh, I've quoted these verses, 1 Peter 3, 6, uh, wives are to do good. 1 Peter three seventeen it's better to do good uh, than to do evil. And 3 John 11 says the same thing. He says, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. That in 1 John, in John's terminology, that's the one who's walking by the Spirit. But he who does evil, that is the believer who's operating on a sin nature, has not seen God. For this is the will of God. Now, how do we know the will of God? Well, the will of God involves one of three things. Either, number one, the revealed will of God. That's the only thing you can know. You can't know anything else because it's hidden in God's omniscience. The will of God is only knowable through reading Scripture. The second category is what is called the sovereign will of God. You only know what God sovereignly allows. It's also referred to uh, it also refers to that until it happens. It may be good things. It may be, you know, I would like to go be a missionary. And God says, no, you can't be a missionary. You're going to be a pastor. I know uh, a man, Gordon Whitelock, who founded Camp Penal. He was going to be a missionary in South America. And the Lord said, obviously, God's sovereign will was not to allow that, but to allow him, uh, wanted him to be the, uh, to found a uh, camp uh, here in Texas. Um, Permissive will is when God allows something uh, evil or sinful to take place. Um, And this is known as God's permissive will. The only thing you can know, though, is the revealed will of God. So when Peter says, this is the will of God, he's talking about the revealed will of God. And we are to serve God as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, that is the revealed will of God, from the heart. And he uses that over and over again, that we are to stand perfect and complete in the will of God. It's spiritual maturity. We're to avoid uh, sexual immorality, sexual sin. We're to give thanks, First Thessalonians 5.18, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me go back and give you those other references. Colossians 4.12, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Second uh, Timothy one one Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God it's revealed will uh, Hebrews ten thirty six uh, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God that's the revealed will of God so this is what Peter is talking about it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil so we'll come back and continue. Uh, our study here in First Peter chapter 2 as we go into the next section which deal with uh, servants being uh, submissive to masters. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that we would be challenged to look at our own lives, think in terms of how we respond to authority around us, and that we are indeed fulfilling what the text says, which is to um, honor the king and to love the brotherhood, fear God, and to trust in you. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.